Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. In these early days of the Biden presidency, a cultural battle that's been brewing for some time has come to the forefront. Conservative politicians and pundits have focused on the ways Biden's presidency represents a broader shift in American life. Many conservatives inside and outside of Washington were outraged in recent weeks that toymaker Hasbro decided to drop the Mr. from its Mr. Potato Head brand. Republicans have also been loudly critical of the decision by Dr. Seuss Enterprises to stop publishing several books with racially offensive images. Mr. Potato Head now apparently has to go by Potato X. And the whole point of Mr. Potato Head is that you can move the parts around. He was America's first transgender doll, and even he got canceled. Hasbro now wants a gender-neutral Mr. Potato Head. These are the issues of our times, folks. Those are decisions by companies, not decisions from Biden's White House. But one set of the administration's actual policies has served to unite the Republican Party in opposition, and that's the push for transgender rights. Well, for decades, America has been a world leader in providing athletic opportunities to women and girls on the same footing as boys. But now opportunities for women are being shoved aside for a new priority, transgender athletes. Biological males who identify as females are entering the competition and dominating their opponents in many sports across the country and the world, in fact. Biden's early efforts to change the government's approach to transgender rights has faced conservative backlash, and Republicans have seized on the chance to portray Democrats as extreme on social issues. This kind of messaging has been successful for Republicans in the past, focusing on cultural flashpoints that seem to drive Americans to quickly choose a side, to adamantly declare their political allegiances. So why are these culture wars such a powerful force in American politics? How did we get here? And is there a path out of this heated political discourse, largely divorced from policy? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. To better understand why political messaging around social issues has become such a powerful force in modern politics, I talked to Brian Conley, who has studied the history of the Republican Party. But that is later in the show. First, I wanted to examine the issue of transgender rights. Yes, it's become a focal point in the culture war of the moment, but Biden's policies could have real, lasting implications for transgender Americans. I asked Washington Post reporter Samantha Schmidt, who writes about gender and families, to explain what actions the Biden administration has taken so far in his presidency to protect transgender rights. For a long time, LGBTQ advocates have been fighting for equal protection under the law. And across the country, in more than half the states, those protections do not exist. Some states have passed 
LGBTQ protections where they've been able to rewrite their civil rights laws to protect people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. But federally, those protections don't exist. And Biden has, since the beginning of his campaign, talked about making that a priority in his administration. And so that's why we saw on day one, the executive order passing these sweeping protections federally across a number of agencies. And what that executive order did was it really applied and implemented a Supreme Court ruling that came out in June of last year, where it said under the law, when it comes to employment, workers are protected not just on the basis of sex, but also on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It was a landmark ruling written by Justice Gorsuch, and that made it clear that transgender workers cannot be fired for being who they are, and gay workers cannot be fired for being who they are. So now the question is, how far does that Supreme Court ruling reach? Does that apply beyond the workplace to other realms? And we've seen some courts say, yes, it does, but we don't have a clear guidance federally on what that means. So that's why we're seeing a number of different efforts on this issue, including in Congress now with the Equality Act. Can you just tell me what is in the Equality Act and where it stands right now? The Equality Act would amend existing federal law, specifically the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and other non-discrimination protections in federal law. It would change those laws to include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes. And it has passed the House and it is going through the Senate now. And we'll see if it's able to pass. It would be a monumental and sweeping change to civil rights protections in the country. What has been the response to these moves by the Biden administration? There's been quite a backlash, as many predicted and feared in the LGBTQ community. There's been a movement separate from these advancements for the community at the federal level across the states to restrict transgender rights. Specifically, there are a lot of bills right now focused on transgender youth and transgender girls. And we see the same rhetoric, the same arguments in favor of those bills are coming up now in opposition to Biden's efforts to expand transgender and LGBTQ rights. For example, one of the big debates right now is about sports. And suddenly we're having these really heated arguments in Congress and on social media and state houses across the country where Republicans in particular are concerned that expanding transgender rights and allowing full access to sports for transgender youth, that that would threaten girls' sports, that that would in some way create an unfair advantage for cisgender girls in sports at a high school level, despite the fact that most of the lawmakers who present these bills can't point to specific examples of this already happening. And so that has been one of the biggest forms of backlash we've seen where suddenly you know, Republicans have taken on the mantle of girls' sports as their big issue. But then on top of that, there's concern about religious exemptions. A lot of religious conservatives are concerned that Biden's executive order and that the Equality Act would infringe on people's abilities to make decisions based on their religious beliefs. And, and this is a constant piece of tension between religious liberties and LGBTQ rights. And we're seeing this play out right now in the debate over the Equality Act. 
looking at these state legislatures and the bills that are coming out of them about transgender girls in sports, what's the objective of these bills? What are they trying to do? They are saying that in the high school level, in public schools, transgender girls should not be allowed to play on sports teams that align with their gender identity, meaning they cannot play alongside cisgender girls in sports and they can't compete against other girls in sports. And their concern is that cisgender girls will end up losing scholarships or losing their ability to compete fairly because they're competing against these transgender girls. Are we seeing evidence of that happening? The Associated Press actually asked lawmakers across the country this exact question, and they found that no lawmakers could point to any specific examples of transgender girls creating unfair advantages and like taking away scholarships from cisgender girls. And, you know, there is one case that's gotten a lot of publicity in Connecticut that does involve some track and field runners. And there's an ongoing legal case involving a Connecticut school's inclusive policy. But more than 16 states currently allow fully inclusive policies for transgender participation in sports. And transgender advocates will say, in none of those states have we seen a total takeover or dominance of girls' sports by transgender youth. So then what do we know about why Republicans and why state legislatures are taking up this issue if it affects such a small number of people and it might not even be happening to the degree that would even warrant legislation? It depends on who you ask. I think when you ask Republicans this, they say this has been brought to their attention and it's suddenly this fear because they see such a growth in people coming out as transgender and there's so much visibility and there's so many advancements legally for the community that suddenly They fear that this is going to infiltrate spaces that are reserved for their daughters and the young girls in their communities. But really, when you look back, the same people who are pushing these bills were also pushing the bathroom bills a few years ago that were seeking to restrict transgender access to bathrooms according to their gender identity. They're the same people who are also trying to restrict access to transgender youth's medical treatments that would help their bodies align to their gender identity or to pause puberty from occurring in their bodies. So it's part of a much broader movement to roll back transgender rights. But by focusing on sports, it gives them a very relatable issue where they can talk to their constituents and to other lawmakers and say, you have a daughter, you know somebody who competed in sports. This is an issue about girls' equality and girls' sports, and they fought for so long to be able to compete fairly, and this is a threat to them. So by framing the conversation about an issue like high school sports or around something like a bathroom, as we saw in 2016, as you said, it sort of moves the debate away from the issue of whether or not transgender people should be treated like everybody else, right? Right. And they're using this idea that this is common sense. We saw Marjorie Taylor Greene put up that sign in the Capitol saying, this is science. You're either male or female. It's biology. And so they keep going back to that. And it is giving them an argument that they see as common sense, but that so many medical experts within and outside of the LGBTQ advocacy world say is not actually based in science. I want to talk to you about what your reporting has revealed about what it is actually like to be a transgender person and to experience some of this politicization of your existence at a national level, how that feels to individuals. And I know you've covered this. Specifically, you've spoken to a high schooler living in Missouri, Chloe Clark. Can you tell me a little bit about her story? Yeah. I first met her last year when these bills first started coming up because this is now the second year that states across the country have 
proposed bills to restrict trans participation in sports, but also access to medical bills. And the medical component was really interesting to me in Missouri, because this bill would say that basically doctors and parents who agree to give transgender kids medical treatments, gender affirming medical care, that they could be criminalized. And I wanted to understand like why these medical treatments were so important to these families and just what it actually means to go through this kind of treatment. For Chloe, what I've learned in both reporting on her story, but also other trans kids, it really depends on the kid. And when the kid comes out as transgender, what options are available to them? And this is such a small population and such a new type of treatment in many ways, because it's only since you know early 2000s, more or less, when puberty blockers really became available in the US and commonly used. And what is a puberty blocker? So a puberty blocker is offered as an option to transgender youth who are on the cusp of going through puberty and want to pause their puberty from progressing in order to kind of halt these distressing changes happening to their bodies. So if you're a trans girl and you have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, which is very important, if you've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, you can start taking puberty blockers that can halt your voice from deepening or if you're getting facial hair or it can halt the development of secondary sex characteristics. Those are all things that create intense dysphoria for transgender youth who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria. That means that, you know, it sometimes is difficult just to function, just to go to the bathroom, just to take showers. It's this intense discomfort with your body that is crippling and causes depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts in a lot of trans kids. And so puberty blockers are temporary pauses in that, de in that development so that you can have time to decide what's my next best step. So what kinds of decisions was Chloe faced with then? Was she able to take puberty blockers? For Chloe, unfortunately for her, she discovered that she was trans much later in her puberty. So she had already started experiencing so many of those changes to her body. And that's what made her realize she was trans because it wasn't until she, her voice started deepening, her facial hair started growing, that that's when she realized this is not me. And that's not the case for every kid, but it is very common that trans kids first discover that they are trans when they're going through those changes. And so it was too late to stop those changes from happening entirely. But at that point, she did start taking puberty blockers to keep them from progressing further. And she started taking estrogen treatments to begin appearing more in line with her gender identity as female. So did that change things for Chloe? I visited her around the time that she'd been about a few months into estrogen treatments. And you could really see that she was more confident. She went from having a lot of trouble in her classes to getting straight A's. She was very extroverted and confident and comfortable in her own skin. And the parents saw that as a sign that they had made the right decision, that this was the right move for her. I think what is so important to remember is that each of these families' cases is so different. But in Chloe's case, you know, 14 was the right age to start those treatments. A big piece of misinformation right now about these treatments is that there's this perception, and Rand Paul actually said this in hearings for Dr. Rachel Levine, who's said to be the highest ranking transgender official in government history. And he portrayed these treatments as genital mutilation. Like surgical mutilation, hormonal interruption of puberty can permanently alter and prevent secondary sexual characteristics. The American College of Pediatricians reports that 80 to 95% of prepubertal children with gender dysphoria 
will experience resolution by late adolescence if not exposed to medical intervention and social affirmation. It's important to remember that surgeries generally do not take place on minors before they turn 18. U.S. guidelines for these medical treatments is for genital surgeries, wait until the trans person is 18. There are some very rare occasional other surgeries that can take place before the child turns 18, but we are not seeing seven-year-olds getting surgeries for gender-affirming care. And we're also not seeing seven-year-olds taking hormones because you have to wait until puberty to start taking those hormones. How has some of this political rhetoric around specifically transgender girls in sports, how has all of that affected Chloe's own journey, her own path to self-discovery here? What struck me whenever I would ask Chloe that is she didn't even have the mental energy to even read this news coverage. I mean, she knew this was existing. And when I visited her last year, she was prepared to potentially go testify at her state capitol against these bills. She was really worried about it. And she is very worried about the real threat this could have to her ability to have these medications. And her parents have even said, like, we will move out of the state if we need to in order for Chloe to keep her prescriptions. So there's this real threat to her life and her ability to be who she is and to be healthy and happy. And and so just getting through the day to day for her is so difficult that she doesn't have the, the time or the energy to really like pay attention to this debate nationally. But it just, for me, really kind of symbolized just how silenced a lot of these kids are in this debate. Uh, the Senate was conducting a hearing on the Equality Act, and there was a transgender 16-year-old who spoke up. But usually these debates are you know, being had among politicians who aren't necessarily medical experts and who in most cases, don't even know trans kids. And so a lot of trans kids I talk to say they just feel like this is a completely misunderstood debate and there's so much misinformation and they wished that the lawmakers would just talk to them and just hear their side. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. In recent weeks, transgender rights, the rights of people like Chloe, have reemerged as a political flashpoint, with the Republican Party uniting in an effort to limit those rights. Conservative cable news hosts and even some lawmakers have been focused on the issue, and it's fired up their base. But why is it that social issues like these seem to emerge as the focal points of our political conversations in this country? I turn to an expert to help me find the answer. My name is Brian Conley, and I'm a professor in the political science and legal studies department at Suffolk University in Boston. I asked Brian what the history of the modern Republican Party can tell us about why social issue battles resonate so much with voters. If you think about what we call conservatism now, that was a faction within the Republican Party that emerged in the mid-1950s. It really doesn't exist in the Republican Party in a coherent, organized way, or even in the country politically prior to the 1950s. The thing about conservatism, as it emerged in that period, it was a movement that was actually more ideological than partisan. That is, it was more committed to its ideology than it was to the Republican Party. What was that ideology? What they would say was they always prioritized or favored private 
over public solutions to anything. So the private sector, the private economy, capitalism, they fundamentally critique the state, which they often called collectivism. And essentially, they believe that almost any form of government was a slippery slope towards collectivism, which for some conservative ideology, collectivism incorporated any form of centralized state regulation. So you're talking about a faction that's defined by this pro-business approach, but I haven't yet heard you say anything about social conservatism. So how did social conservatism emerge as part of the modern Republican Party? I think it comes out of the, what was called the traditionalist tradition. The two big ideological kind of clusters would be what we would refer to now as libertarianism, which favored above all the individual and the free market. But it really didn't care so much about what the values of the individual had. So it was like the individual could operate harmoniously amongst themselves and society. They didn't need a regulatory state controlling them. So there was that tradition, favors the market, favors small government, favors capitalism. And then there was the traditionalists that talk about notions of family and community, hierarchy and society, kind of organic social orders. And that's where they have a prescriptive vision of how people should live, what roles within the family, what units in society matter, like the family. And that's where I think you start to get religious beliefs, religious influence, beliefs in natural law over natural rights. So when exactly did the party begin to push to the right on social issues? So the 50s would be the intellectual movement. The 60s are when the right gets involved in the Republican Party very systematically. In the 1970s, that's when they start to expand and think beyond even the Republican Party. And what can we do to mobilize particularly religious groups to become active in the Republican Party? So people like Paul Weyrich was this major kind of behind the scenes organizer, one of the founding organizers of the Heritage Foundation and other conservative think tanks in the 1970s. They had this vision that there were certain social divisions, particularly along racial lines, that they could exploit in order to move blocks of voters into the Republican column. One of the chief ways in which cultural variables or issues have become politicized in the United States is around the notion of work and who does and does not work. And this actually starts with George Wallace in 1964. He basically argues that what liberalism is, is overtaxing people who work, implicitly white males, and gives government funding and resources and money to people who don't work who are implicitly people of color or women. And I think what happened is that that started in the Democratic Party, but with Nixon and then into Reagan and then on to Trump, the Republican Party saw that as a vehicle to reach a majoritarian group of people that is a large group of white male voters primarily. So they start portraying liberalism as elite-led Washington bureaucrats taking money from the white working class and giving it to other groups of people. So it became kind of this group-based conflict. And I think what the new right understood was that they could build on what the Nixon people called the social issue, that they could peel off groups from the Democratic coalition based on the issues, which would be desegregation, busing, law and order, and those issues. Why are these things so effective? Why were the Republicans able to peel off Democrats around these particular kinds of issues? That's a good question and a hard question to answer. One way I think about it is that all voters are kaleidoscopic, right? Where we have all these different variables that in an overdetermined way shape our identity. And so part of the answer is that political groups can mobilize people around certain aspects of their identity as opposed to others. Because if you think about any of us walking around as defined by all these different variables in our lives, certain movements and certain moments and those things combined, like when there's transformations in society, groups can come in and say, hey, look, this is under threat or this is under threat. For example, you could be a worker 
who's also a deeply religious person. Well, what aspect of your identity is being mobilized? Which group is more effectively reaching you with the threat message that this aspect of your identity is being harmed? Because if you look at many religious, say, Catholic voters for decades voting for Democrats, they identified that aspects of their economic identity were being threatened by corporate interests. And so they were more than happy to support uh, New Deal democratic politics, even though a lot of these politicians were pro-choice and Catholic voters were not. So they were kind of juggling those competing interests. But it was, again, what part of your identity was being mobilized. I'm not sure if social identity issues are more effective than, say, economic issues. I think that what may have happened is that there were concerted efforts to mobilize those around those issues as opposed to the other ones. Then today we see tons of issues around culture wars constantly being inflamed on both sides, almost like a litmus test of party loyalty or to mobilize a respective base how did we get here? How did we emerge to a place of just these constantly reigniting culture wars? Part of it is, unfortunately, the extent to which the political world has mimicked the commercial world and also mimicked the media. Because we have such low political participation and turnout in the United States and enthusiasm for politics is so low and trust in government has just dropped a significant degree, the challenge becomes for anybody in politics, how do you engage with voters? How do you get them to be enthusiastic? How do you create a loyal relationship with them over time? These are all the same things that actually happen in the commercial world. Commercial businesses and products all do the same thing. How do we develop brand loyalty? How do we develop relationships with people? How do we cut through the clutter? Because there's so many different choices out there. The political world, like the media world and the commercial world, have developed all these strategies of differentiation and division. It's like you're a Pepsi drinker and not a Coke drinker. You know, you're a Mac person and not a PC person. So differentiation seems to work. Like the aggregate public relations and market research has been done is that there's certain things that work. So differentiation seems to work. So that stuff's been incorporated slowly since actually the 1980s. Reagan was really the first one to do it in a very systematic way. But there were, of course, elements going on, too, both during Nixon's period, where he had people like Roger Ailes and others that were in there trying to do these micro-targeting things and figuring out the power of media and controlling the message and that kind of stuff. By the 1980s, it really accelerated. Clinton tried to do it, but it really, really started to take off, I think, probably in Bush 2004 and then with Obama 2008. Probably the game-changing election was 2008 and what the Obama campaign did, where they really figured out how to use a lot of these strategies. But ultimately, doesn't it just seem like these strategies exacerbate polarization? The thing about polarization is polarization may be destabilizing to the overall political system, but part of the reason why it's a significant problem is because political parties have figured out that it really works. It's a cost-effective way to actually engage with and remain engaged with targeted voter segments in the country. If you look at Roger Ailes coming out of the Nixon campaign launching Fox News, it's a perfect example of this strategy of differentiation. You do not go out and try to represent everyone. You try to represent certain people and you develop loyalty with those people by saying you do not represent other people. It's worked in the commercial market to facilitate that type of brand loyalty. And it's worked in politics, but then it can be destabilizing because now we're no longer talking about product rivalries. We're talking about Political rivalries, we're talking about potentially cultural rivalries, we're talking about actual conflict in society. And the differentiators that we're looking at are things that maybe don't have policy impacts or real meaningful impacts to our country, but instead are issues around whether or not there's a mister in front of the potato head brand or whether or not the coronavirus is real, right? Like things that 
are these hot button issues that can serve as differentiators, as you've kind of called them, but in reality don't actually serve to get the American people any closer to policymaking than we were before. That's absolutely correct, because it's not a policy strategy. It's an electoral strategy. And I think, if anything, what, that's what's happened to the Republican Party. It's been entirely captured by an electoral strategy. Partly it's this strategy of constantly running against liberalism and also constantly running ideologically against the government going back to Reagan, like that government is not the solution, but government is the problem. If you look at, say, Obamacare and so our health care, look at the success that the Republicans had from 2010 till 2016, 2018, when they could just simply say one or two things about health care, which was repeal and replace. And then when it fell into their lap to actually come up with something, uh, that was a completely different challenge. What they had absolutely mastered was the politics of saying, no, repeal, replace, repeal, replace. And because it delivered for them so effectively, there was no electoral incentive and there was absolutely no ideological incentive to ever do anything else than just say that this doesn't work. So is the Republican Party too far down this path of sort of constant electoral strategy? Is there a way for them to either dial down some of the heat around the culture war issues to move more toward policymaking? Or is that really not the goal? The goal is just to win. And so if an electoral strategy works, it works. You're right. I mean, it goes back to some of the fundamental political science debates about political parties and what their function is. If it continues to work for them electorally, there's absolutely no incentive to ever change it. Are there other ways that we can shift political discourse in this country away from some of these culture war issues? So I'm not just talking about the Republicans and their electoral strategy, but as a nation, can we move away from these culture wars or are we just too far gone? The only thing that would potentially change is if it stops working or not working as well. And so in some respects, it might be incumbent upon the Democrats to come up with a strategy. So if, say, the Democrats came up with a competing strategy, which wasn't, say, polarizing and wasn't based on social divisions and persistent social conflicts and divisions in society. And if that started to turn out more people, or if just in general, the Democrats would start to turn out larger numbers of people, then all of a sudden, the strategy of division wouldn't work anymore. And the Republican Party or anyone that adopted that strategy would have to contemplate something else. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? How are we doing in the Biden era? Let us know. We'd love to hear your feedback. Send me an email at allison.michaels at washpost.com. Thanks so much. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Charla Freeland, with new logo art by Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.